Thank you for listening to the following film's podcast. Today I'm joined by director, writer, John Pogue to discuss his latest film, Eraser Reborn. Eraser Reborn is the next chapter to Eraser, the 1996 Chuck Russell-directed action thriller that starred Arnold Schwarzenegger as a U.S. Marshal assigned to erase the identities of witnesses he's assigned to protect. Eraser Reborn is currently available on VOD as well as Blu-ray and DVD. I had a great time chatting with John, and I hope you enjoy the show. Oh, yeah. Hi. <laughs> can you hear me okay now? I can. How you doing? I'm good. You know, we're three years into this bullshit. You think that we would have it down by now, but I swear I cannot get Zoom to work uh, probably 50% of the time. It For me, it's a mystery uh, <laughs> every time I turn it on. <laughs> Well, uh, thank you for taking the time to do this. I really sure. do appreciate it. Yeah. Um, and as you can see, I'm in my car right now. And not I like your studio. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very professional organization we're running here at Following Films. But uh, it's perfect timing because it was one of those things where I had an appointment that I had to go to today. And I had three hours of downtime in between uh, kind of the bookends of it. So this is a perfect way to pass some time. So thank you. I appreciate it. I love it. Uh, looks like you had about the budget, uh, that, that we did. <laughs> well, you hide it a lot better than I do. Cause that, that was one of the first oh, things I wanted to fine. say is that I assumed the budget on this would be pretty limited, but the stunt work here, um, that's hard to fake. And I think you did a really good job with it where it feels like you leaned into, um, actual practical effects and stunt work more than you would CG. If you had the choice, it feels like you were leaning more practical, um, when yeah. you could, was that the case or. Well, that's a, that's a, I really appreciate that. That's an awfully big compliment. Um, yes. I mean, I think uh, given the tone that we were going for, which was to sort of try to bring some of the, the fun of the original to a much uh, smaller, uh, you know, production budget, we really wanted to try to keep it um, as practical and real as possible Honestly, we knew that we could never, you know, match the um, the spectacle uh, and the and the really fun spectacle. I think of the first one. So, so you know, you ask yourself, what direction can you go in? Well, let's go more. Let's go more practical, a little bit more real, um, to try to bring a little bit of a different flavor to it, and you know, try to make this new franchise stand on its own. Um, so we did, we did a lot of things practically. We were very fortunate to work with, uh, William, uh, William Mintz, uh, South African, um, coordinator and his incredible team. I got to work with them on deep blue C3. Um, so we knew each other, we had a shorthand and we were, uh, you know, ridiculously, I think ambitious with the action on this little movie, and, uh, you know, did our best to kind of pull off something that we were feeling was, you know, how can we, uh, you know, modestly try to be as epic, epic as possible. <laughs> and, um, you know, they, they just, the, the South African crew and cast are just in, so intrepid and they never take no for an answer. So a lot of things that I proposed that, you know, would normally get shot down uh, under different circumstances in different countries. They're like, of course, we can we can do that. We can figure it out. And uh, I think that's their strong point is the, the 
you know, practical stunty ability. Uh, and they really kind of went for it um, and did a lot of a lot of things in a safe manner that, frankly, I thought we weren't going to be able to achieve. And so when the decision came, you know, came between practical and doing it uh, in a CG fashion, we always, always tried to do it practically. So they're, they're great to work with. It's really all on them, frankly. Well, and, and, it, and it comes across that there was a level of dedication here that you don't see in a lot of films like this. And when you see a sequel that's 25 years later um, or thereabouts, I guess at this point, because Eraser, in my mind, it's uh, just, it was ubiquitous on DVD. It was one of the first ones that was released and it was just everywhere for years where you couldn't escape that movie. And so, yeah, yeah, but it would seem like, you know, it could be cynical in that sense, but it doesn't feel like that at all. You never try to, I think a lot of sequels make the mistake of trying to up the original instead of add something different to it. And you never try to out Arnold Arnold in this, you know, and that, that right away from casting Dominic in this role, I feel like you're doing a smart thing and pulling this much more grounded approach to, I mean, it, it's not grounded in that sense, but I guess if you put it like next to the other eraser, it's not that, it's not that kind of spectacle. You could feel yeah. like this exists in a somewhat parallel universe that we, we were in right now, if that makes sense. Wow, that's a huge compliment. I mean, I'm so happy that you that you felt that way. Um, you know, <laughs> when you do a movie like this, there's clearly like the world's biggest target on your back. And yeah. I think um, probably deservedly so, frankly. Uh, and so I think that, you know, you, you it's it's a bit uh, of a. Uh, uh, I don't know. I, I wanted to use the word suicide pack, but <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a uh, uh, it's it's an interesting contradiction to deal with because on the one hand you have you know the kind of cultural memory of what that movie was, which I think you're alluding to, and on the other hand the what I think is the potential of that character and what that character does and what that means for identity. Uh, on the other hand, and that's worth exploring. So, you know, we, we, we took the jump um, because I thought it was, was ex- worth exploring and sort of recreating um, without trying to, you know, you, you can never do out, outdo Arnold. He's, you know, he's incredible. I thought the original movie was quite, quite good. I confess that I worked on the original um, as a writer uh, so there was a little place in my heart. It was one of my first efforts as a young pup. Um, and so, um, you know, we, we just from right away, we knew we're not recreating. We're re- trying to, you know, reinvent. And I think that sort of informed all of our decisions. Number one, going with Dominic Sherwood. Uh, absolutely. And I think that um, the mission statement that as you kind of laid it out there, um, with this place that it held in your heart because it was something that was um, personal to you where you worked on it. But culturally, we've changed incredibly in these last you know two decades. So I think this is much more representative of where we are now. If you would have done a shot for shot retelling of the original film, it would feel out of step with where we are now. This is a throwback to those types of films, but still of our time now which I feel like is the right way to approach this kind of material where um, you can do things that are sort of out of step where we are now, but with this, you're focused on sort of the ideas and themes more. 
where on the original film, I think you kind of have a, the lasting image of my mind is an alligator, an early CG alligator is kind of the first yes. thing that pops in um, to yes. my mind. And so with this, I, you know, not to give anything away, but the way that you handle that in this, I love it. I think that's absolutely the way you handle that kind of, it's the thing, are, are they going to touch on that? And I love the way that you handled that here, but I, I think it's, that's the right way you do it because you're not going to, you, you could end up in that Robert Forrester uh, alligator territory if you're not careful with that. Yes. Yes. We, um, you know, the, the animals getting the animals in was a kind of a, a must for me yeah. and, but how, how we got them in and um, uh, the, the extent of the spectacle uh, and it was, was a, was, <laughs> was a big, was a big challenge. Cause I, I, I also remember uh, I, I think when I think of eraser, strangely, I always think of the alligators and I don't think of what is to me, one of the best action sequences of all time, which is Arnold's escape from the, um, from the, the, the jetliner. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and I don't know why, but I think maybe you're right. It was sort of the first time that you kind of had that CG close in, you know, uh, uh, sequence and that's sort of what, what defined it. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's an, it's an interesting, it's an interesting point you make. And we, we were just trying to thread, you know, thread the needle, uh, uh, as best, as best we could. Well, and I think you did. I, I actually, I really had a lot of fun with this movie. It's not often that there these types of movies that I know that I I'm a genre guy. So action, horror, that kind of stuff. I know I have, I'm very forgiving of things. Now, my wife, on the other hand, she's not very forgiving. So <laughs> she has, a, she has a, a level of tolerance for my bullshit that, you know, I think she keeps me in check in a way. Um, and yes. so when I started watching this, she actually sat down with me and watched the film with me and genuinely enjoyed it. And that's something oh. that's, and she's never seen the original eraser. So those nods that you have, it's not something that you're even aware that this is a callback to something else. If you have that memory of it, it works, but it absolutely stands on its own as its own thing. And I think that's how it should be. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And we all worked, you know, we all worked really, really hard to achieve that, you know, despite knowing that, uh, you know, we had we had the 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 cloud um, of people's expectations based on the original following us around. But but, you know, that's OK. I'm a big boy. We can handle it. For me, it was an opportunity to make, uh, you know, what I thought could be an interesting movie. Uh, I'm, you know, was particularly interested in how the idea, the idea of identity and erasing your identity has changed. Um, and, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but HBO was our partner on the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, HBO was like, look, we're interested in this because of the identity angle. Um, because it's really a lot harder to erase your identity given facial recognition, given, you know, the, the social media and the world that we live in and how, how do you deal with that? Um, uh, and, and I, that was intriguing to me. I think that you could probably, we probably could have dug into that much, much deeper, um, and sort of, uh, you know, skim the surface on that. But, you know, uh, I think that's something to be explored down the road for Eraser Berlin or whatever <laughs> the next one will be. Well, hopefully. <laughs> you do touch on it in a way that I wouldn't have necessarily thought about immediately. And you're absolutely right that we're constantly 
being videotaped and recognized and social media, anybody that has not actively said, I do not want to be a part of this thing for the last 20 years, your footprint is out there. Your thumbprint is out there. So you're going to be recognized. There's no way around that. And you know, the the simple thing with that idea of that selfie, when that's taken and it scrambles that image and how you would have to do that, you would have to be at that level to just walk down a street where there's people. And if you want to be connected to society at all, you can't disappear really. And what does that do to your sense of self when you can't disappear? Um, when you can't unplug and when you can't disconnect from th- this thing that has created moments like this that I genuinely appreciate where I can connect mm. with people whose work I really admire. And there's that positivity behind it. But I think we all know that our social engagement in the last couple of years, especially, we found out that even the most introverted person like myself, um, I need to be connected to people. I need to be around people. Um, but I, that's because I am not that person that I am online. That is not mm-hmm. a full representation. And sorry, I'm kind of going off on a tangent. Yeah, no, that is no, something I'm that I was thinking about during this film. It's just that idea yeah. that it, it just touches on it enough that I think it it leaves that room to play with. And it's not mm-hmm. something where you're beating it over the viewer's head. It's There's a lot of fun to be had, to be had here. And you handle this material, I think, in the appropriate way. Thank you. I mean, I think... Um, uh, I appreciate, I'm, I'm very grateful that you feel that way. I mean, we, we, uh, we always walk a fine line, I think with, you know, as filmmakers of, and, and for me, those sort of questions, if you hit them too hard, um, they don't become real questions anymore. They become sort of speeches and I'm not interested yeah. in that, especially in this kind of movie. But I think that, you know, if you, there is a, uh, uh, an ancestor of what we're talking about in the original eraser, because mm-hmm. the, you know, the military industrial complex and the, the, the weapons that they had there, you know, there was sort of a, an envelope of um, this hitting on something real uh, within the original eraser that was also kind of lightly you know, very lightly, you know, dusted up upon uh, and so we were trying to do that with identity with, with this one in sort of a equally, you know, skimming the surface way. And, and that, that's kind of what I, I think the thing that draws me back continually to genre films and why the films that people might think might not think of as being worthy of revisiting to me, you can find those themes in them and you're not being hit over the head with it. And something, yeah. you know, you go back to like Night of the Living Dead, there's a film mm-hmm. that just, you can put so much social commentary on it to the idea that it was thing elements that weren't even on Romero's mind at the time that have been painted onto that film that are just, they're deeply connected. So it's, that's the social relevance of that movie now. Um, and I think that because you handle these things in that way, it's not, it's indirect, it's poetry. To me, it's, mm. it's, it's abstract thought where you can handle it in a way that, yeah, here's some spectacle, there's stunts, there's action, there's fun. But there's also this little thing in the background that we're playing around with, and it's something to think about to sink your teeth into later without fully examining it because it's mm. it's not professorial. It's fun. That's uh, that's that's a very eloquent way of I think articulating my filmmaking <laughs> philosophy. <laughs> I'm gonna write I'm gonna write that down and claim it for my own. Um, but uh, yeah, couldn't couldn't agree with you more. And I. I not to you know go on about it, but I think we're living in an era of a lot of big movies with a lot of 
um, very uh, manipulative things, uh, points they're trying to get across, which are not to me poetry. And thus I just sort of, you know, like reject them um, because that's not really storytelling. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's preachifying, but that's, that's another, well, that's, I, another, that's another conversation. That's uh, honestly, that's it, to, it. It is. And I, that's why I've enjoyed your work for a long time now. Um, something like quarantine Two, the opening mm. of that film, when you go back to it, cause I did oddly enough that and ghost ship, I revisited before I was aware that I was going to talk to you in the last year. So ah, they're both cool. fresh in my yeah. mind. And it was something that I thought I had misremembered is why I went back to quarantine too. Cause I was like these women at the beginning of this film that you would not expect to open up a band of horses CD was kind of this thing at the beginning of it. And it just always yeah. stuck in my mind that like, there's somebody that's kind of having fun here. There's somebody that's doing something different. It's a nod to either a friend or just a band that they love or something like that, because that is not the obvious choice. And it was, you could see that <laughs> playfulness right from the opening frames of that movie. And I think that's something that's always attracted me to your work. And, you know, that and the opening of Ghost Ship, those are two of my favorite openings for, you know, <laughs> a very different reasons, though. Yes. Well, that's, uh, you know, the Band of Horses, that's uh, really interesting because Mercedes Mason and I, the the, the, the lead in, in quarantine, we're, we're trying to think of um, a way that, that, um, that, the 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 attendants could bond mm. um and uh you know that believe it or not that was the subject of weeks of <laughs> <laughs> weeks of debate um and uh it was uh it was an, an actual it was actually signed by them they were very kind to help us out but um you know and ghost ghost ship is just one of my personal all-time favorites um uh you know the especially really especially the opening oh um yeah. which i i i wasn't as uh you know I, I was hoping the rest of the movie would sort of rise to the rise to the opening i think it had a little bit of trouble with that um to be self you know uh critical but um the you know the opening on ghost ship um i was brought on board to to revisit rewrite the script um, and Joel Silver was like, we just have to have the most insane, uh, opening that anyone's ever seen before in any movie. Um, and, uh, you know, money is no object. And he had this, um, opera singer that he loved. And I mean, it just, it's just, it was crazy how it all came about, but I went and visited the, the Queen Mary down in Long Beach and spent some time on the deck trying to think of like what what's the most insane thing that could happen uh on a you know on a ship in the middle of sea and the, the party and the opera singer and and uh I just was sort of spent all that time there and I just kept looking at it, it was staring at me right in the face all these you know these cables this whole sort of system of cables that they had uh and that was sort of the genesis of what became kind of a really fun opening for us <laughs> is and, and it's weird I'm so glad that you mentioned the opera aspect of that because there was something that that element that angle of that it's something that goes back you know 
I dialogue of a Carmen lights. I don't, is that over? A, is that a hundred year old opera at this point? I can't remember. Are you mm. familiar with that, that opera? I, I, I know the, I know the title, but I'm not familiar with the story. The, it's uh takes place during the uh, Spanish revolution. And at the, at the end of it, there's these nuns that were at this um, missionary and they are being executed one by one. And it's a chorus of 12 nuns. And as they walk off stage, you hear the guillotine go down and they're all being executed oh, wow. and until there's the last nun on stage and she walks off and she goes up into the aria. She hits the high note and it's cut in half by that. And that's how the, the opera ends. It's just, wow. and it's one of those things. It's one of the most powerful images that are, you know, kind of auditory things that you just destroys you in the moment. You just, huh. you can feel the audience just go away every time. And Ghost Ship has a similar <laughs> act in a weird way where you have this thing and you're just kind of and playing with that. I'm not sure if Joel Silver was aware of that or not by using the singer, but it's just something that it, it's in my mind. Those things are connected because it's the same kind of idea. It's playing with that same powerful sort of idea of this thing being, you know, literally cut in half in the middle of it. Yes. And where it's that expectation of it. And it's something that is on a much larger scale and for a different impact, but it's something that I haven't seen anything like it since, honestly, since Ghost Ship. It's something that's pretty remarkable. Well, th thank you. And a lot of people put a lot of thought into that. Um, I was just fortunate enough to sort of have it come to me. Um, but I think the, the the cut in half idea <laughs> as it relates, you know, Joel had op opera, party, yeah, you know, uh, and, and, and uh, it, I don't know, uh, you know, I don't know how it came to me exactly, but um you know, it uh, it was very it was very satisfying, and I think Mr. Beck, who directed it, did an exceptional job with that sequence, um, kind of ratcheting all the tension up, and all of the right pieces were together in that scene, and especially kind of early early CG blood people being cut in half. I think it's still pretty remarkable. Oh yeah, I mean, you kind of to bookend that back to Eraser in that sense. You know, I. You could see the potential when you saw the first Eraser film with the special effects there. You could see something, but pretty quickly you could see that, okay, the technology has already moved past this point, you know, and mm -hmm. it's grown exponentially to where now it's just at the point where we could see those, that potential in that movie. But with something mm -hmm. like Ghost Ship, yeah, it's a CG thing, but the right amount of practical being mixed into it, yeah. I think is the key there where it's something, you know, you look back at something that was of that same time period, like a uh, interview of the, uh, with the vampire where they're extending mm. sets, uh, sets using CG. So you're not even aware of it necessarily mm. in the way that they're using CG. And I think that that was similar to ghost ship where it was that used to enhance instead of just lean into it heavily. And th that's my favorite stuff really. Uh, it you know what I couldn't agree more, and it's actually something that, um, not just for budgetary reasons, I try to do a lot of. I mean, we 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 had I don't know five hundred and some uh, VFX shots in Eraser, and half hopefully half of them <laughs> you you don't notice. Um, but I it's it also I think looks it looks better to integrate to integrate the two. Um, and, uh, you know, so we're always looking for opportunities to, to mesh them because for me, it looks, it just looks better. It looks more realistic. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. And I, maybe it's just something in my age, you know, I'm 46 years old and I, you know, some of my earliest memories are of stop motion animation, you know, and 
practical, tactile things that, that existed in a world, if not the world that I'm currently in, it existed somewhere. There was somebody hmm. moving that object. And there's something that I don't, even now, I, I don't know that it um, necessarily helps that you can have photorealistic CG, but you're not limited by the confines of reality anymore, by the constraints of reality. So you can just make things that don't feel like they have any, they, because they're, scope is endless. It doesn't feel like they have any stakes to me. They don't, yeah. it doesn't feel like it's just, yeah, I don't connect to it. And something like Eraser Reborn, that's something that I can just throw myself into because it feels like it's of this world. It feels like mm -hmm. something that I can, that actually happened. You know, you watch this and you see somebody's movement and it's not perfect. And it's a little bit clunky here and there. And somebody moves and they misstep for a second. The hair gets in a way that's not perfect at that. And that that's what reality is. And whether you're conscious of it or not, when you're mm. watching a scene, I think that there's something that happens internally where we reject it, or at least I know I do. Yeah. It's, it's a really, it's a really interesting um, arena to sort of think about. Uh, and, you know, I've got three, three uh, boys um, that are uh, young twenties to teenagers. And, um, you know, they've inherited such a different, different world. Yeah. Um, and so there's some, some things that they watch where I'm like that, you know, I can't even watch it. I'm not going to name anything. Um, but, but uh, um, I think that there is a feeling in that generation though, that because sometimes they'll watch more much like straight on practical movies and go, Oh my God, like this is, this is amazing. So I think, I think there's some churning, you know, there's some churning going on. Um, I'm not saying there's a movement. I'm saying it's people are, people are aware of like, okay, we've gone too, too weightless, too thin. Maybe we need to pull it back a little bit. Um, in, in Eraser, we tried to do a little bit of both. Um, you know, given, given the constraints that we had and, you know, uh, we were working with a really good, I think, um, South African company, uh, on a real budget. Um, so, um, uh, you know, I'm really pleased with what we were able to put out, pull off. Could you also real quick talk about the, cause I'm a sound guy and the oh, sound yeah. mix met, uh, clearly meant a lot to you here. Cause I think the sound work is really top notch. This is, I, I, put this next to anything that's in 2000 screens right now, you have a absolutely wide release quality sound mix in this film. And I think it's really, oh, uh, this is one that if you're, if you can put on headphones and watch this and turn it up really loud, or you have a good sound system, it'll definitely give it a workout. Thanks. Listen, um, you know, it's, it's an arena that isn't talked about nearly enough, which, you know, for me as, as, uh, uh, a filmmaker um, that's always trying to, you know, do things, do things better. Like I've come to appreciate sound uh, as, as this sort of unbelievably key component to, to narrative. Mm -hmm. um, and that if there's, you know, that there's, there's almost like a, uh, there's an unconscious quality to what sound does to a movie that, completely elevates the experience. And so I'm always amazed because when we do dailies and rough cuts, we don't have any of the, 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 uh, the world of sound there. Yeah. 
And I'm always kind of like, ah, this is, you know, this is okay. This could have been better. But then with the right, you know, Greg, who, who, uh, who did the, the onset um, sound for this and for Deep Blue Sea, you know, he does so much of just going out into the world that we're in, recording stuff, giving us, you know, track after track, uh, not just a- ambience, but um, uh, piece, you know, pieces of um, uh, vehicles uh, that, that, that we couldn't pick up. You know, this took place in South Africa. So I didn't want to return with Santa's sleigh to LA without like great sound. And, and we just got piles and piles of really great material. There's a lot of stuff from the, um, like, like when, when uh, Rena and Pollard arrive in Cape town, yeah. um, sort of all the ambient sounds that mix in with the mix with the score um, you know, if you really listen, they're they're kind of in there that I th- I think they kind of unconsciously pull you into the story. When they arrive at the safe house, you hear the the um, call to call to worship, and in this part of Cape Town, it's a uh, um, uh, there's a high Muslim population, and you're always like, oh so wow, yeah, is that you that you hear to me like. Uh, are are critical and vital to hearing it dry. And I just don't, I think that movies, at least in, in the movie making process for me, they kind of are dead until the sound st- starts to come into it. You know, on Deep Blue Sea 3, we did tons of uh, underwater uh, recording and yeah. all the, like the sounds, the fish and the sharks and the, and, and, and we had the same anarchy sound, uh, and Sean mixed mixed that as well. And, um, you know, I'm so fortunate. The people that I work with, it's just a labor of love for them. And they just, you know, they go they go the extra, extra mile times 100. And so we just brought all those sounds of Cape Town into Eraser Reborn. Um, the docks, um, you know, animal sounds. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to get like rhinos it's hard to record rhinos in certain moods. So yeah. like all of that had to be created. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that you, you bring that up because that's a really, really important part of uh, our work here. And if you can listen to it in a great, you know, five, one environment um, with some good headphones, you know, let me know what, what you hear. Sometimes you might hear some stuff that we didn't intend, but <laughs> uh you know, there's nothing like it. Well, it, it's it's one of those things that I really became keenly aware of it when I was studying film. And you start going to a lot of film festivals and you see pretty quickly the films that they look very similar that are all shot on 16. But then the ones that got the sound right, you know, because at the time that's what we were using, 16 millimeter when I was in film school, mm-hmm. the ones that had the sound balanced right, that they had their mix right, that it sounded good, they felt like something that was legitimate. It didn't feel like a couple of kids that were doing something on the weekend. And when you take that out beyond independent film, when you're looking at smaller budget films that are be it direct to video, direct to streaming, it feels like something that's even by people who are making movies at a professional level like that, that might get overlooked from time to time or the, the, it's not a clear point of focus when it's something yeah. that is this visual medium. When you're focused on your special effects, you're focused on your stunt work. 
and it can do so much of that heavy lifting. I mean, you know, anybody that grew up with Star Wars, you watch it without John Williams' music in it, and you know that's a totally different movie. You watch it without that sound, though, in it, and it's non-existent. It's, you know, unwatchable. Yeah, I mean, I I completely agree. And I think <coughs> Mark Killian, our composer, would, would agree Great with music. you as well. <laughs> yeah. In fact, he, you know, he often... Um, he and I often fight about the fact that he thinks there should be less, less score. And he's like, let the, let the, you know, let the world tell the story a little bit more. Um, Cause you know, I want, I want the, you know, I want to really drive, drive certain things home. And he's like, you know, sometimes you can really drive something home a lot better um, where you really just sort of pull back uh, and yep. let, you know, let the world of sound that's there um, integrate into whatever your eyes are seeing uh, and what your heart is feeling and you'll have a better movie. So he's been instrumental on a, a bunch of films that I've worked on as sort of a guide, guru guide um, to, you know, try to make try to make these sound as good as possible. Well, and you're right. He And he I agree with him. He's absolutely right that it's not just the actual mix. And it's not just the music. It's it's how you're using it, pulling back on it and completely letting go of it. Silence can be absolutely more effective than being bombarded with noise in how you're using it. There's moments of silence that are absolutely devastating. You know, we were talking about it just a second ago with the opera that I was referring to, but you know, if you, even something that's more contemporary, I think there's your average audience goer doesn't realize when they watch something like Castaway that the entire time that um, Tom Hanks is on the Island, there's no score that it's just the sound of the island itself. And so that doesn't come in until he's back in society again. And so that's a control that you're putting on it that makes that music all the more powerful when it swells back in. And you might not even be conscious of it. And I think that's when the best special effects, the best editing, the best cinematography, it's not things that you notice as an audience member. It's that it's just carrying you through it and servicing the narrative. I think that's a great point. And it also relates to action. Yeah. Um, because I think there's can be a tendency, you know, if there's a, a fight or a chase or intercutting, you know, that you're always sort of hammering it um, with with score. And I think that uh, there's a, you know, there's definitely a fatigue factor, but also an excitement factor that, you know, one has to weigh these these elements carefully to kind of get the best response and sort of pull back from the knee jerk. You know, we need to feel more here, you know, because it might already be there. Well, you know? if you're if you've been going around the track at 160 miles an hour for 90 minutes, at the yeah. 95th minute when you're really trying to drive something home and you ramp it up to 170, does the audience even notice at that point? You know, do they have anything left in the tank to feel at that point? Because you've yeah. you know, you really have to pull back and the and that's something that kind of constraint in action, it's not always the best path for it because there's plenty of stuff that's wild and just it's absolutely wall-to-wall splatter, gung, you know, whatever you want to call that. And that's the that's what you're going for. That's fine. But for something like your film here, I think that the restraint that you're using, the leaning into performances, it's not something that you normally see in action films or you don't always see in action films. And it's a, a welcome, you know, kind of change of pace. So I really appreciate that. That's That's a... That's a very high compliment. And uh, I wish that you could have been in the hundreds of meetings with the studio, you know, where I'm like, let, no, we're going to have le- no score, less score. 
Um, you know, cause you, you have to, it's, it's as a, as a, you know, someone in my position, you have to see kind of the whole, you know, the whole picture. And it's hard sometimes to do that when you're sort of taught, Oh, it's this sequence, it's that sequence. And I have a hard time doing it too, which is why I have, you know, I'm very fortunate to have some really good people help, you know, helping me out. Well, that, that's why I was always the worst editor still am um, because I can't, <laughs> I can't divorce myself from what's already in my head and the idea right. of guiding the audience through an experience completely clean. If I know the material and I know it, I will trim way too much out of it because I, I don't want to hold their hand, but you kind of have to let them know a certain amount. And I end up pulling it back to way too far. So um, I yeah, can hold it. horrible editor. And I think they're one of those things where they're the much like composers, much like sound designers. And there's all these people that are unsung heroes in filmmaking and editors are definitely up there, especially in action. Um, but not even just for the action sequences where they get the nods, but the pacing in between the action is so crucial that I think that it doesn't get the recognition that it deserves. Uh, just like, just like sound. And of course yeah. those, you know, sound editors, it's, it's editing is just another of those magical components that really, you know, bring, bring the, make the movie come alive and, and uh, you know, not to go on and on about it, but, but, you know, Glenn Garland, who's a fantastic editor that I've worked with many times is just, you know, uh, a, a key guiding light in, in the movies that I've been trying to make um, for just, for just that reason. Um, so, you know, hats off to, to all the editing work that's, that's done. And it's just, it honestly, it feels like magic, even to me sitting in a room, you know, for 12 hours a day, I don't, I could never do, you know, uh, what they do in a day, it would take me like a year to do, it, not just, not just in my brain, but like physically, yeah. you know? And so, oh, I can get it in my brain sometimes, but actually the, it, it's alchemy to me. It's something of taking all those elements and combining it and making something that is totally on its own. And it's, yeah, it's one of those, it's a special kind of person that does that. But I, I, I got to thank you, John, for not only um, making the film, but for taking the time to talk about it. It was a, a, a welcome reprieve this week. I'm in the middle of the Tribeca coverage. So um, I'm watching a lot of very well-made, high-minded, important type films. And it was really nice to have something that was, that was just fun that I had a good time with. And I think that this Great. is something that I can easily recommend to people because it's something that is fun it's light but it's not something that will insult you and i that's actually pretty rare which is weird it seems like something that would be an obvious choice to make but there's not not nearly enough stuff like this out there so thank you yeah, for it well, thank thank you so much i i really enjoyed this and uh uh really appreciate what you had to say thank you Thank you, John. Yeah. And, uh, and thank you for uh, responding to my email because I went through the normal channels and I wasn't able to connect through the publicist. We were trying to get it to make it happen. So I appreciate you not being uh, bothered by me reaching out directly. So I do. Appreciate no, it's uh, look, uh, honestly, I, 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 as you can probably tell, I'm really happy to talk about the movie. <laughs> oh. So um, it was, it was a pleasure and I'm glad that you reached out and I hope that we can continue the conversation. I hope so. I, I'm, if I, if, and I'm not able to make it through the normal channels next time, I'll reach out directly. You've got, you've got, got my info. <laughs> All right, thanks, John. Take care. Okay. Bye. Right, bye-bye. Bye. Time enough to figure you out. 
Time enough to write this down Wish me luck, give me hope